think it's a little nuts how fast NLP has been developing the last couple of years. It feels like the field is moving faster now than it had been any time in the past by an order of magnitude at least. When deep learning came out for language, initially when people were thinking of things like word to vec or glove, right, that was a huge leap forward for the field that we weren't getting the same kind of results that computer vision was getting. And to see that change and to see us be able to accelerate and catch up and then really make strides ahead and what we're doing has been really tremendous. But I think we're in an interesting place because for the most part, a lot of these systems we don't understand deeply, right? It can be tremendously hard to keep up with the papers that are coming out for students, yeah. for me, for other faculty and researchers and even entrepreneurs, anybody who has to keep up with what's going on. It's, it's really hard. And I think that's an interesting place. Both you don't want to say slow down, but also in some sense when no one can keep on top of everything that's happening, you know, some things are slipping through the cracks. So we're, I will look it up and get back to you, but there were papers published within the last couple of weeks uh, at ACL and other places. It's so weird now because there are no physical conferences. The milestones of when things get published get all jumbled up. I don't remember who's ICML or ACL, but where under certain circumstances, models don't have the differentials and performance we thought they did, that a lot of parameters might be extraneous. So we worry about these things. It's like, how can we keep using these models that are doing really well? Well, we don't understand what's going on and why they're doing really well. And I think we have tremendous hurdles to figure these things out. But once we do, I think there's a lot of potential now. And I think there's a lot of potential first for really powerful things in the future as well. Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where I have conversations with my peers, with other leaders, data science leaders from around the world, and I unpick their brain to see how they've made it to the success that they got. And with this, we hope that their stories inspire you, they show you what is possible, and you get to learn from the tips, tricks, secrets, and mistakes that they and I have made. I definitely have many, many mistakes to share. They all obviously make for good stories. We get those from our guests as well. My name is Felipe Flores, and I'm a data science executive and currently working in a healthcare AI company as head of data science. Today, my guest is Catherine Havasi. She is one impressive practitioner. She's what I would call an applied researcher in the sense that she's been doing research in NLP for a long time, but with a strong focus on how that research is applied in the real world. So much so that as a result, she's become a serial entrepreneur while continuing her research. So she tells us about what she's done in NLP on research land and then how that's led to her starting leading multiple companies throughout the years, some of them in parallel and how she's been managing, going from running one company to being in the board of that company while doing her research on the side, or well, not on the side, but continuing her research and then starting a second company. Really, really exciting and impressive stuff. I was very impressed speaking with Catherine. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, this is Felipe Flores. Today I'm speaking with Catherine Havasi. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing as well as can be. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be, to be speaking with you. I'm so keen to pick your brain and learn about, more about your journey. And I wanted to start with an origin story. How was it you got pulled into the world of data and machine learning? How did that initially happen? I think I've always been sort of interested in it. When I was much younger, I was interested in AI because I was interested in how people think. 
certainly when I was growing up, actually figuring out how people think through neuroscience or something like that was was nowhere near where those fields were. So I think I thought about teaching a computer to think as a way, as sort of a gateway for that. I really started doing the kind of stuff I do now, especially around anything like open source or open data um, in the late 90s when we were starting to build OpenMind or ConceptNet. And the idea there was, hey, there are a lot of bored people on the internet. How can we use them to make machines better? I love it. That's, that's, that's okay. actually literally what we said in the proposal. It, the proposal literally says, harness the power of bored people on the internet. You know, we were thinking about SETI and SETI had just come out. And I was like, oh, we can harness bored CPUs. Why don't we harness bored people? And, you know, at the time, it was an idea that every economist on the planet almost was saying that it would never work, that people would never do work for free, that the cost is too precious. And then at the time, this was one of the initiatives that started to prove people wrong. Yeah. And I think for us, I meet everywhere I go, I meet people who even 20 plus years ago, 20 years ago now, were entering the data. And I always ask them, so why did you do it? And the answer was they were try supposed to be doing something else almost always. So people were in class and people were supposed to be in a meeting for work and they're bored and they're just entering data. That's how it all started, <laughs> which I suppose is still oh. fun. I love it. It's interesting that you came into the field with the approach of how do people learn and how can machines learn. How has that initial starting point of curiosity, how has that worked through your career and what influence has it had in the decisions you've made? I think it's, especially early in my career, I bounced around between fields a little bit. You know, I have a master's doing child developmental psych, which I don't think a lot of people know, and then ended up doing that for a year and a half. And then after that, it was a great experience. We started doing a lot of things that were very helpful. But at the end of that, I was like, oh, this is not going to help me <laughs> help me figure things out any more than AI was. So I went right back to AI. And I think in the end, for me, that was always a goal and it's still a goal. But at some point, they're separated, right? Teaching computers to be smarter is no longer, I think, the right way to figure out how we're smarter. And I think I did early on. So that was a driver. And now it's just curiosity and interest in the field and really a passion for natural language processing. Oh, fantastic. I love it. Tell me about your learnings from doing child psychology. What did you expect going in and what was some of the surprises that you found? I think it was... For one thing, it was a really different experience because the entire work environment and culture of psychology is very different than the culture of machine learning. So flipping that over was something that I think helped me as a researcher as anything, just to see how that other field works. But from a science perspective, one of the interesting things we ended up learning is that people, especially young kids, can be very plastic in what they learn. And that's possibly a technical term. And what that means is you're very adaptable, especially when we're younger and try to learn a language. If we start seeing patterns that are different or are in addition to the language patterns we know about. We pick them up and we use them really quickly. People are very much pattern finding animals. And I think to some degree, as I think to deep learning, that's what's been really successful there is attention and pattern recognition. And that's how it works in kids too, to some degree. I'm curious to see it in, in my life as well, my personal life, now that I have a young daughter and I have another one on the way. I speak Spanish to her basically all the time and my wife speaks to her in English and she's um, starting to pick up the both languages but yeah, it's quite so interesting to see how quickly they learn and how would you describe the culture of computer science? In cognitive science they ask very direct questions <laughs> there's a lot more of a, a aggressive culture of questioning than there is in computer science and so that was definitely a something to be honest it's it's a lot more mixed ai is a very male-dominated field there was only one guy in my lab in developmental psych right so it was sort of a reverse of that and i think both of those things were really interesting 
Certainly, oh. I was very unprepared for how questions are asked in psychology because everybody in AI is there's different motivations for questioning than there is in psych yeah, or at least yeah. So, science. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the way that people ask questions um, of each other. So not necessarily yeah. <laughs> people are, yeah. But research questions, research questions too. It's just both in, in what people are on to ask in a seminar. You know, people are very, have you thought about this in a way that's a little bit more direct and to the point? I'm going to get in trouble here. <laughs> No, no, it's totally fine. Sometimes they can be a good addition where I think they were definitely very diplomatic and maybe too nice. Less so diplomatic like, is really the right <laughs> way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. And then how did you choose to um, specialize in natural language processing? How did that come into fruition in your life? I think that's an interesting question. And I was just actually thinking about this question. I think the answer is really, is really open mind, right? And because we started working with language and that was sort of the idea. That was the first time I had really worked extensively with language. You know, I had been doing one before open mind and that's what I thought about. But with open mind, we started focusing on language and learning about that was sort of where that came from. I've always liked languages. I don't speak them very well. <laughs> this is the old Pat Winston joke that AI people tend to focus in areas that they're not particularly good at, and I'm terrible at learning foreign languages, so I decided to teach computers how to do it. So maybe that's it. Maybe I just think it's fascinating. Same thing with the developmental psych linguistics work. I think it's fascinating that people are, you know, all multilingual. I'm not. And how we pick that up and how we learn it. So I guess that was kind of how that started. Oh, that's fantastic. Have you seen the field evolve in your time? Because having worked in so many unique and interesting yeah. projects in the space and learning and keeping up to date with what's happening and working in research, what have you seen as, as some of the major uh, developments from your perspective? I think it's a little nuts how fast NLP has been developing the last couple of years. It feels like the field is moving faster now than it had been any time in the past by an order of magnitude, at least. When deep learning came out for language, initially, when people were thinking of things like word to vec or glove, right, that was a huge leap forward for the field, but we weren't getting the same kind of results that computer vision was getting. And to see that change and to see us be able to accelerate and catch up and then really make strides ahead and what we're doing has been really tremendous. But I think we're in an interesting place because for the most part, a lot of these systems we don't understand deeply, right? It can be tremendously hard to keep up with the papers that are coming out for students, yeah. for me, for other faculty and researchers and even entrepreneurs, anybody who has to keep up with what's going on. It's, it's really hard. And I think that's an interesting place. Both you don't want to say slow down, but also in some sense where no one can keep on top of everything that's happening, you know, some things are slipping through the cracks. So we're I will look it up and get back to you, but there were papers published within the last couple of weeks uh, at ACL and other places. It's so weird now because there are no physical conferences. The milestones of when things get published get all jumbled up. I don't remember who's ICML or ACL, but where under certain circumstances, models don't have the differentials and performance we thought they did, that a lot of parameters might be extraneous. So we worry about these things. It's like, how can we keep using these models that are doing really well? Well, we don't understand what's going on and why they're doing really well. And I think we have tremendous hurdles to figure these things out. But once we do, I think there's a lot of potential now. And I think there's a lot of potential for, for really powerful things in the future as well. It's interesting that you bring up the comparison with vision uh, when it comes to deep learning. I want to ask you more about the difference between being so stuck, and, and uh, especially as more and more people started to generate more data from input data, and it makes mm -hmm. vision like quite easy because you can clip or rotate an image, you can change the colors, right? It's still the same image, right? But when you yep. get the words, <laughs> you change the order of the words, you get completely different meaning. What do you see as the main differences between? 
combining deep learning integration and natural language processing? And um, what do you see as, as main differences and in, in hurdles to tackle? To be honest, there's always going to be less data in natural language processing than there is accessible in our machine environment. Basically, anything else other than robotics. There's always less data, and we always have to adapt to that. And we build these very big models, but being able to specialize them to particular target domains is, is something I find very interesting. To languages that are English, where we have the huge bits of data, and that gets into something that's called transfer learning, which is basically the idea you can take a big pre-trained model and do something called fine-tuning, or there are other techniques to sort of move that model into a particular debate. But that's something that's much more prevalent in NLP than it is in other areas because of the data scarcity. And I think that's always going to be an issue for us. And the same thing you said, where you can change the color, you can do all kinds of different things. And that way we can build models that are a lot more robust to different kinds of, I think in different kinds of manipulation, right? I think we have this problem in AI in general that we have GANs, which are adversarial, which have adversarial in them. And then we have adversarial attacks of, uh, against models. And this can be really confusing because we're using the term differently in different places. But when you're doing what machine learning people call, you know, adversarial attacks against a machine learning model. You can make a vision model more robust against that kind of thing a little bit more easily. But this is always the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, I think. I think there really is something with vision and language where language people are like, oh, vision people have it so easy. Oh, that's great. Yeah, no, there is a paper that actually came out it seems like forever ago at ACL before any of this started in February, which was the last physical, that in AAAI, which was the last physical conference. That's not actually true. It was close to the last physical conference I was at. Entitled, Is Burt Robust? Where they're doing adversarial attacks against Burt, paraphrase attacks. So you take a movie review and you just swatch it around and, you know, people don't notice that you switch some, switch some of the words around, but the system will stop being able to get a movie review sentiment right. And I think that's tremendously interesting and sort of points to some problems that we were talking about earlier in sort of model robustness. And I think Vision has just had time to clean some of that out a bit more, come up with some ways of dealing with that. But of that course, again, grass is greener. <laughs> Interesting because at this point I go definitely way outside my expertise. But what I was thinking when you said that is you know, the, the grammar or the, the way that we write or how we choose to express yeah. that can be learned by the models as well. And if we express the same idea in different ways, it might not be the usual way, then it's it's outside of the parameters. Is that kind of like what's what was happening there? I think so. It's definitely interesting. We ourselves, that work is DGEN over at CSAL, which is I'm from the Media Lab, which is across the street from the Computer Science Department. So they're actually different labs. We're looking at ways of dealing with model robustness by different means as well. And I think some of it has to do with different vocabulary people use in different places, right? If you think about it, there's a tremendous number of ways you can say cute dog on the internet. Needing to learn how to process and deal with that is definitely something we have to be doing as well. Exactly. Especially when language is, is uh, constantly evolving. The other day I came across the origin of okay, of the word okay. So apparently... I just said the, okay. <laughs> that's sort of what they were saying. Yeah. They were saying like, this word is probably the most recognized word in the world. People say it hundreds of times almost every day. What was the, the origin in the early 1800s? People were saying they wanted to create acronyms okay, that, yes, were, yes, yes, yeah. that were kind of secret. And one of them was when instead of, so OK stands for all correct, obviously it's an AC if the acronym right. was correct, but they wanted to make it secret by changing it Seen to it. All, oh, okay. Okay. all double L and correct with a K. And there was like a myriad of these um, secret, secret acronyms. 
But that was okay, the only one just, that we, we think about now, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah, and people try to use it as it was rising in popularity. People try to use it in um, presidential elections in, in the U.S. A president that went up for election and didn't win was using it in his campaign, and then people attacked him for it, and it, it became came to prominence uh, from something that was literally a misuse of the language and trying to change it on purpose. So the language is constantly. This is why NLP is so hard, exactly, because language is is a constantly absolutely yeah and what type of applications have you been working on during your time when either taking things and applying it in different areas or what are the type yeah. of um, research initiatives that you've been working on so right now I'm working on two pretty separate things, one more at MIT and one more, at, honestly, a new spin out. So we're looking at, or it's a really interesting time to be looking at this, we're looking at digital healthcare. This is an area that's the reason, one of the reasons we're looking at is this area has changed so much since we started this lockdown because I had a checkup earlier today and it was on Zoom. Right. And there's all this telehealth going on, but there's no real infrastructure for it. If we think about people who are struggling with chronic disease management or something where they have more of a, it's not just a one-time Zoom thing, they have more of a high-touch environment. As more and more people go onto these services, it's a scalability issue, right? Like, how does one doctor help all of these patients? How do we build something that's more personalized for an individual that helps them deal with that kind of stuff? And I think it's very interesting. And that's something we're definitely looking at. How do we we help people with behavior change in a way that's grounded in, going back to my psych interest, grounded in psychology, right? Grounded in how we actually build habits, right? And can we do that with NLP? And that's something that we're looking at. It ties back to work that I was doing before Luminoso at MIT, looking at how language affects adherence, right? And we were doing this with Brown and with Tufts and Dr. Ira Wilson. We were looking at how patient-doctor language affects adherence later on. The answer is it does a lot. Pretty much everything, the way your doctor expresses things to you really affects your outcomes. And that stuff becomes very interesting. And so we move into a more digital health world, right? So that's one thing that I'm working on. That's very early still. The flip one of that, it's become interesting in a different way also in the last two months. Everything I'm doing, obviously, has changed based on what's been going on. You know, another thing that we're looking at is story understanding and entertainment. If we think about the way intelligent agents have been created and conversational AI has been created, it's very transactional, right? But if you want to do something as fun as take a, this is the MIT side, take a intelligent agent and put it on stage an improv comedy show or, you know, even do something that's much more of a relationship building. And there's tons of applications for this. How do we do that, right? How do we build an intelligent agent that is more about relationships and a little bit less about answering a question as fast as possible or that's more odd in different ways? So just taking the niche where conversational agents have succeeded and trying to see what it would take to bring it into different places, either places in the storytelling one that's a little bit more creative and relationship building side, or we're also working on a project where we're looking at doing it in an environment where a human and a computer are working together to solve a problem. That was incredible. That was way better than what I expected when I asked the question. So I'll ask you more about each of the two sides. And it sounds like you're building upon some of your previous research. Yeah. What else is in that, in that previous research for your work? Yeah, that was a little bit that we had been working on. And I think as we sort of look at this, it's one of the places it came from is uh, sort of looking at people who have questions about COVID was the original place, one well, of the original places we started, right? Because everybody is calling in to helplines to both ask questions, people who are sick and people who want to know how long, whether or not they need to keep their Amazon boxes in the garage for several days <laughs> before they open them, right? And the urgency of the situation, plus the number of people who have questions and the number of questions we have 
have means, well, how could you do something to help scale that, right? And that's something where I think we were very interested in taking some of the work we were doing on sort of that scaling that kind of conversation and trying to see that. If you look at something like in customer experience, right? And I've done a lot of customer, somehow we've not talked about customer experience, which is fine, but somehow I've done a lot of customer experience, right? And if you look at that, you end up in situations where one CX agent is using a tool to talk to 20 people. And that works because of the nature of the conversation. Again, it's goal-oriented, Right. So how do you try to make that work when the conversation is a little bit more difficult or nebulous or something like in these kind of environments? So I think that's an interesting question, right? How do you help somebody reach a lot of people at once? So interesting. How would that work in the case of medicine where people might feel or expect to be sort of that one-on-one one on one, yeah. I mean, yeah. if we're seeing with what it's to go back to the COVID helpline, I think so. There's sort of two sides of it, right? There is one people know it's automated. Like if you go to a lot of the websites out there right now, they'll be they'll walk you through an automated question answers thing, and it will help you either make a mask or it will help you figure out whether or not you should go to a testing site or something like that. So those are clearly automated, right? But there are yeah. so many edge cases in those systems where people are like, well, but what about this and what about that, right? And so if you have something. That I think this is true across a lot of AI, actually, that people and computers together can usually do more than either can do separately. So the question is, how do you build an environment that's not just a phone line, but is something where people can go to the computer if the computer's the right answer and can go to the person if the person's the right answer, or they can work together if that's the right answer. And I think that that's a a big important thing when we think about AI-focused design in general, is we want to be figuring out not just how to replace people, or ideally not how to replace people, but how to amplify people to do their job better, right? And to be able to reach more people, right? Especially in places where normally only the sickest people are going to get a human on the phone, right? We want to make sure that when you have a hard question, you get the human on the phone for the hard question and don't for the parts that are easy. And you can think of CX having succeeded in doing this quite a bit, right? At Luminoso, we definitely think about what we do in customer experience as being something that's like that, only different goals, different machinery under the hood. But the idea is if you take the people who want to reset their password and automate their workflow completely and figure out that they should just be sent to a self-help page and, and it should just work, then you have more time to spend with the people who have a serious issue, right? And all my serious issues right now are, are kind of funny because they're all things that I got in my head from you know doing all this e-commerce that I've had to do over the past two months. If we're thinking of a fintech situation could be somebody who needs to reset their password. It could be somebody who, who you know, lost their bank card in a foreign country. You want the second person to have the customer service agent to have the time to sit down and, and make that person feel better, right? And you can't do that unless you take the first set of stuff off their plate. And I feel like we can do that other places too. Incredible. And can you expand on the way that the language can drive behavior in the recipient. Mm -hmm. That just sounds fascinating. And Mm -hmm. something that, at least for myself, something that I expect that that's the case, but I have no idea as to Mm -hmm. what type of language would help more than others. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've you've done in that space? Sure. I can talk also, uh, I'm going to talk about a lot of people's work here as well, because I think there's been a lot of great work in this area. So when it comes to how people communicate and how habits are formed, a really great book came out last year, actually, um, by Dr. Wendy Wood, where she takes a look at uh, how do we form healthy habits? How do behavior change as people, right? And it, it turns out that, you know, how much you want to make a change 
into your life matters a whole lot less. Motivation matters a whole lot less than how much that change is able to fit into some kind of daily routine you have or attach itself to something that is already a habit. And so if there's anybody who's listening right now who's trying to do a healthy behavior change, remember that. And maybe you learned something that's not about data science from this, which is that it's not motivation. For the first week or so, it's motivation. And then after that, it's 100%. How does this situate into your life? And one of the things that we found consistently when we were doing work at the Media Lab, when we were looking at uh, how language lines up with, this is precursor work to Luminoso, we were looking at how to do language analysis and how that later lined up to people's buying behavior. This is like 2008, 2009. And starting there is when we first started seeing that more concrete language was more indicative of later behavior. And this is a theme that I've seen across pretty much everything. So at the time, it was software, and we were working with some folks at Microsoft Education, and they were doing market research around the way educators use software. And they were having difficulty because what people said in focus groups, this is true a lot of places, what people said in focus groups wasn't actually what they wanted in the end product. And so we ended up being able to prove together that that more concrete the language that was used on the ask, the more it was actually something somebody was going to use if they put it feature into product. And that's really interesting. And that lines up with a lot of the work we've seen in sort of digital and health as well. And that the more someone talks concretely about something. The other thing we saw when we were talking to, when we were looking at provider language is the more the provider, basically, the more there's I get exactly what Carolyn Rose at Carnegie Mellon studied this kind of echoing as well. But the more the provider and the patient use the same language to talk mm-hmm. about things back and forth to each other, the more likely the patient is going to understand what's going on and, and do a good job adhering to it later on. So there's definitely a match there that you need to understand. So there are all these really interesting subtle cues in language. I love this stuff that really help us understand how well we're understanding each other and how we're thinking about things. This is mind blowing for me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and a lot of this can be very easy to implement or easy to look at as well. You know, some of it's really hard NLP, but if you want to look and see how much overlap there is in in the way people use language, you can do that in a way that's fairly easy with sort of modern NLP methods to say, hey, these people are more aligned or these people are less aligned. We were doing work years ago, and this is, maybe I shouldn't get into, this is interestingly prophetic work, and this is stuff we were doing before 2016 and before the cycle into that election, we were looking at the way Democrats and Republicans talked on Twitter, and this is mm-hmm. before things were as polarized as they are now. And mm-hmm. something that we found, which was interesting, is Republicans tend to use the same talking points, and Democrats tend to use all different talking points. If we look at the way people study media now, it's the same, and that's interesting. So there's all kinds of little weird and interesting behavior cues that are echoed in language, and you can see those and learn about them, and they have a lot of implications. What do you mean in the last bit when you said that people that study media now see the same, the same behavior as what's seen? Yeah, they see that Democrat language tends to be more fragmented and Republican language tends to be less. So interesting. I didn't expect, around one of your, your first points there, I didn't expect the language of the person being asked to describe what they would like in a product, I didn't expect that their language would have cues um, as to what valuable versus a nice to have 
yep. I think that is a such a yeah. idea that can be easily implemented. It's interesting. It's really fascinating. I mean, I think, you know, we went on to basically find very similar results many, many, many times afterwards at Luminoso and our customers did too using the tool. How can you pick these things out? How can you find what kinds of language is more likely to drive the kind of results that you want. And it's often more concrete language. You know, if we're talking or we're thinking about concretely how to do something, that means we're much more likely to do it than if we talk about in an aspirational sense. And I think that it was fascinating to me to read that psychology has found basically the same sorts of things. If we can make something more concrete and more practical, we're more likely to do it than if we're motivating ourselves. And that's why we can tie something to an existing habit or have a... a yeah, tie it to that because it's trigger. more concrete. I thought that was so interesting. Anyway. Yeah, especially yeah, having existing habits and creating triggers or realizing triggers. Super, super interesting. I know that at least in my case, I find it difficult to uncover some of my unconscious habits until like I really get either focused and usually ask for help to find what is something I can, I can hope something new. That's really interesting. Tell me more about sometimes the agent and the customer use the same type of language. Oh, yeah. That was something we found when we were looking at adherence. Basically, if the patient and the doctor were using very similar language, then it was really a key that they were listening to each other and communicating. And that was pretty key to adherence later on, because if a patient felt the doctor was listening to them, then they're much more likely. And if the doctor is actually listening to the patient, then it's much more likely to have a good outcome. I mean, this isn't rocket science, but it's nice to prove that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Was there anything else in the way that the provider speaks? Is there anything else that helps with adherence? There's a lot of studies that have been done, and I would have to go there on my my nice little, the more papers I read, the more I forget who did what work uh, list and, uh, that I should have brought up for some of these this stuff. But there's uh, really interesting work about trust. There's a lot of this going on right now. And what kinds of things in language make people more likely to trust other people in a medical context. And I think we see, people have seen, obviously I stopped working on this to go do Luminoso and I'm only just getting back into it. I think a lot of people have seen that when there's trust between a doctor and a patient, obviously that helps outcomes. Oh, amazing. I was just going to say that uh, my wife is a doctor and uh, she tells me uh, how at times doctors can be a bit wary about using teleconferencing technology for treat patients because they feel that they can miss so many other cues that they get when they yeah. when they see a face-to-face person. And that even comes down to the way that somebody stands up from their chair when they're being called into the office. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. And then doctors say that they can learn so much from that with um, how people walk to the office. Sometimes they've seen kids with like broken arm or like with a sore arm, but they're playing with their brother and then they push themselves up to get off the floor and then they walk into the office. They're like, oh, my arm, my arm. So, <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting. But this is super interesting. Uh, yeah. research. And tell me a bit more about your time at Luminoso. Sure. So Luminoso, uh, we spend Luminoso out of the lab at the very end of 2010. My wonderful, now quite a bit ex PhD student, Robin Spear. It was it was her idea to do the company around around her work. Um, I mean, I think we had been thinking about it for quite some time. But one of the things that was going on was that 
a lot of people in the very early days of deep learning, as is true now, there's not enough data. When you're thinking about how do you bring this kind of stuff into a corporate environment where the language that's being used is very specialized. And I think that's something that a lot of people run into in NLP in general. So mm. if you're doing NLP with a general model and you try to apply it to fintech or something like that, you're going to run into issues because the language is different. And so a lot of people try one of these general models, they don't get what they want and they write off NLP, right? And that's not what's going on. It's that the language the model was trained on is different. So what the question is, initially we got into market research because the stuff like the concrete language, we got really great results there and we continue to get really great results. And so the goal is how can you help take what was going on in the 2010, if you can think back to there, there was this whole data-driven marketing revolution. Things like market research and qualitative marketing, qualitative research, as opposed to quantitative research, wasn't getting listened to because they didn't have the same data-driven approach. And so we said, how can we bring the quant to the qualitative research? And that was sort of the original impetus. And then we found pretty quickly that the market research professionals were pulling data from the call centers and putting it into the system. And then we they'd get their report back and they'd give it back to the call center. And then the call center would call us and be like, hey, wait, we want to talk to you. And so this kept happening. And so at that point in time, you, to be a candid entrepreneur here, you look at the market size of market research, you look at the market size of customer experience, and then you jump. Is what happens, right? Because there's just so much potential in helping companies do better customer experience, right? It's just become so important and so very expected. And in so many places, CX is a gateway for a lot mm-hmm. of larger non-cut companies to get into data science and to AI. That's a really good point. It's so true. Mm-hmm. And you see that with customers that you're working on, that it was like a startup for their journey? Absolutely. And I think it's really, you get this really interesting viewpoint in companies, especially established big Fortune 1000 companies, how are they starting to think about putting AI into practice? And you know, if we think about it now, it's too often it's a science fair project in the for the innovation team, right? And there's it could help lines of business. Nobody in data science wants to be working on a innovation team science fair project. And so I think the reason CX works really well is because it's very results driven environment. It's it can be a very metrics driven environment. Now, what the metrics are differs by the company, but it is often a very metrics driven environment. That can be your NPS score. That can be how much time people are on the phone, it can be any different kind of thing. So it's easier to chase away skeptics when you have numbers. And in general, watching companies try to take data science and put it into practice, that has been one of the bigger things that I've seen is that the the two things are one, if you have numbers, people become believers faster. If you have a real clear ROI that you're fixing, people become believers much faster. And the other one is to have a clear plan for what to do when the experiment works. And that's funny, but it's really a problem for a lot of big companies, right? Like, Mm -hmm. if if this works, what's the follow through, right? And we had a definitely not going to air any names of Jerry Logic here. We had a fairly large company that was coming up with an increasing list of things they needed to change inside other business units inside the CX department. The CX department would send them different reports. This is, this needs to be fixed. And, you know, months would pass and they'd always send the same report and nothing would ever change, right? And then eventually they hired a management consulting company to try to fix the process. But you need to have a good idea of both how to take a prototype and put it into production. Well, how is that going to work? But also after you come up with results, how do you get people with the organization to make changes. And that can kind of keep, those are sort of the issues around sort of making this kind of thing more operational inside companies. And it makes a real difference when it works. 
that is um, very, very crisp and clear learnings uh, around having metrics to convince people to show them the value mm-hmm. and having a plan for when it's successful, scaling. Right. For, and right. all the downstream changes that need to be done in an organization in order to operationalize a prototype into the production and the scale back. Super, super important learnings there. And how did you find going into Luminoso and, and um, I guess, starting a company, becoming an entrepreneur? What were some of the surprises? I think my transition was a little less abrupt than it seems. You know, I had done uh, social good nonprofit spin out of MIT uh, years earlier and had been part of the team that had done that. And we took a program that we did where we brought middle, local middle and high school students to college campuses and taught them stuff. And so we built a whole software platform around that. It's still a huge program. If you live someplace where there's a splash program in the US, it's probably descendant from this. It's still a nonprofit, right? I had done development work for that. I'd done development work for the computational linguistics high school Olympiad. So between those things, those are tiny ideas. I had done some and still do a technical due diligence consulting. So for me, that was sort of the idea. But when you're doing technical due diligence consulting for growth stage venture, everything looks really rosy at the companies you need to take a look at, right? <laughs> everything is great, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't be called in to take a look at them. So you get yeah. this picture of entrepreneurship, and it's a lot more down in the trenches than that. I think... In the beginning, the things that we ended up learning were really around stop making excuses and do it (laughs) in a lot of places. You spend a lot of time making sure things are perfect, and Mm -hmm. largely that's not what you need to be doing in the beginning. A lot of the skills that you have in working in academia, anytime you've managed anybody, any of those skills, or anytime you've written a grant, all of those skills come to bear in the way that you learn how to tell stories about the work that you're doing and explain to people who might be less technical. I was talking earlier about doing some of the adversarial stuff and and humans and computers working together. I could have also said, we're looking at ways is to improve retrofitting using a GAN to do the actual retrofitting rather than actually going in and doing very few people would have everybody needs to do even in a lot of different environments because you could be very technical, <laughs> but that's not going to help you in a lot of cases when you're starting a company. So storytelling definitely helps. And that helps when you're talking about your work as an academic as well. Jeez, I kind of lost my thread. Sure, it's not there. No, are you kidding me? That's, but, that's you know, I think those are things. Also, I'm very bad at naming things. I think that's spot on. Like those are the type of things that are yeah. important to learn and acknowledge in terms of the differences going into the business world and as an entrepreneur. And how has the company evolved in the ten years that it's that yeah. it's been running so far? And your role as well. Yeah. Goodness, I mean, quite a bit, right? You know, initially there were a bunch of us in Mass Challenge. We'd take our little cube out. It was about, I drink a lot of tea, as anybody who's watching the video side of this knows. So, you know, the cube was about half tea and the remaining half of it was the other company possessions. We'd take it out and we'd set it on the table. And going from that kind of environment to 60-person company offices in Tokyo and London is a big journey. And there are different stages along the way. And I think that's the number one thing that I had to learn about was, you know, you end up in, there are people and processes that work when you have a very small company, there are processes that work when you have maybe 10 to 20 people. And then as you keep going up, it keeps changing. Things like we have to figure out, and I think everybody's figuring this out right now, how do you actually build a remote team and work with a remote team? That's really hard. How do you make sure remote people in different time zones feel included? These are all things that become important, right? I think for me, when we raised our Series B, I started going back to teach again. I think that was something that I 
was really passionate about. I'm very passionate about working with students. I love working with students. And then I went back and then I sort of realized that I missed the startup world too, especially the early stage startup world. So I feel like I need a little bit of a balance and (laughs) I had to learn that about myself as well. And doing some teaching as well is nice. Although I think virtual teaching is very hard, (laughs) but that's a whole different podcast. I believe that. So what, if anything, can you tell us where your desire for early stage startups led you afterwards? That's what we're working on with the healthcare stuff. That's the new thing. It's going to be the healthcare thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's only just come out of stealth. So. Ah, it is out of stealth. (laughs) Kind of. (laughs) Everything has been crazy. We were supposed to go out of stealth about mid, late March, Abtech. And of course, though, in in the Valley, and of course, I was not in the Valley. There was no, really no Mtech. There was a little online thing. And we didn't come out of stealth and we're like, what are we going to do now? (laughs) Oh my goodness. It's been a crazy time. Definitely so crazy. So where is that um, company at? Have you picked a name? Do you have a launch? Have you done a launch? Where is that still coming? We have not done a launch. Depending on when this airs, we might have done it by then. So Uh, uh, I will keep you posted. Amazing. Yes, please. If we can include links uh, to anything on the show notes, I would love to do so. That sounds super exciting and so necessary right now. COVID-19 world and definitely it'll be very necessary in the, in the post-COVID-19 world. I live in Australia and when we in a matter of a week we went from having zero telehealth conferences <laughs> ever to almost 35,000 conferences um, 35,000 calls the week after and then the growth kept on from there. Uh, so it's something that is a reality of the new world, yeah. definitely an expectation going forward and we yeah. need need all the help we can get so your work's going to be welcome with open arms yeah and i mean i think also there has on top of everything else there's been another thing that's been very important is the way science funding has worked through the pandemic has actually changed and there have been a lot more acceleration towards getting many people to do projects that are a lot more impactful even outside of of research and academia and as we think about all the challenges that we have as a society moving forward you know i hope that we learned a little bit about how to build things that bring ideas into fruition quickly in academia and in research that i hope we can take forward after this as well so i think if there's any silver line it's that exactly Catherine, I'm going to be respectful of your time. This has been an absolute blast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, for sharing your learning. So that's the work that you're doing. I think it's incredible. I'm so impressed with everything that you've done. The diversity that you seek in your work, it's truly amazing. Uh, Please continue. Thank Thank you. you. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.